You're listening to Girls with Grafts, a burn community podcast created by Phoenix Society for Burn Survivors, a leading nonprofit dedicated to supporting the burn community. In this podcast, we'll talk with burn survivors, share resources to help with supporting and improving burn recovery, and discuss how to prevent burn injuries. Here are your hosts, burn survivors and Phoenix Society's marketing team, Amber Wilcox and Rachel Kudlak. Hello and welcome back to Girls with Graphs. I am Rachel Kudlak. I'm one of the hosts of the podcast and I'm joined as always by my lovely co-host Amber Wilcox. Hi everyone. So good to be back for another episode and I'm very excited about today's guest. Um, But before we introduce him to the show, Rachel, do you want to go ahead and tell us a little bit about today's sponsor and then introduce him to our listeners? Yes. Yes. So today's podcast is powered by the National Fire Sprinkler Association. NFSA aims to protect lives and property through the advancement of fire sprinklers. You can learn more about fire sprinklers, fire advocacy, and how to get involved by visiting their website at www.nfsa.org. So without further ado, I'm so excited to have today's guest on. He is a friend of both mine and Amber, so I'm sure we'll have lots to talk about. Um, But our guest today is Dennis Garden, who was burned over 70% of his body in a horrific gasoline explosion as a child, resulting in extensive hospitalization, dozens of surgeries, and years of therapy and rehabilitation. Prolonged pain and profound disfigurement caused him to hide in isolation for years in the confines of his parents' home. But he he never gave up. Dennis has grown along his journey of self-discovery to become a successful businessman, professional speaker, ministrant, former television talk show host, and radio personality. He is currently privileged with the honor of serving as the executive director for the Georgia Firefighters Burn Foundation. He hopes to inspire individuals to face their inner scars and self-limiting beliefs to begin creating an abundant, fulfilling life of purpose. Welcome, Welcome Dennis. Well, thank you. Thank you guys for having me, Rachel, Amber. This guy. I'm really jazzed to be here today. Yeah, this we're is so cool. happy to have you. You always bring so much joy to whatever room you're in. So we're very happy to have you here. You know, and I would agree with that. I like to think when I walk into a room, I own it. You do. <laughs> you sure do, Dennis. Yes. But, but, it, well, but it, it definitely was not always that way, though. It was not. Well, Dennis, on that topic, I know Rachel shared a little bit about the burn injury that you had in the bio, but I'd love it if you could tell us a little bit more about your burn injury in, in your own words and kind of just speak to that journey as a survivor. Okay. Um Well, I was burned in a gasoline explosion as a 14-year-old, but I have to preface that by saying I was a brilliant 14-year-old, and I I certainly knew more than my parents did. (laughs) As all teenagers do. As as all teenagers do, and I was so much smarter than them, and my motorcycle needed repairs, and my parents were taking too long to put it in the shop. They actually weren't, but anything that doesn't happen right now with the teenagers taking too long. And mm-hmm. I got a couple of friends to help me sneak the bike out of the garage into the basement so that we can work on it without anyone knowing what we were doing. And none of those little boys realized how close we were to the furnace and the hot mm-hmm. water heater. So the four of us went to closed in space, gasoline, 
building up of fumes, open flame under the hot water tank. It was a design for disaster. And we spilled gasoline, ran under the hot water tank, and it exploded. And I received uh, burns over 70% of my body and spent eight months in a hospital with over 50 surgeries. And I had a 13-year-old friend that received a 20% burn, and he was in the hospital for six weeks. And it was a very different experience. And, uh, and I actually, my first three weeks in the hospital, I was in a coma and on life support. And when I came out of the coma, my friend wasn't there with me, and I thought he had died in the fire. And what I didn't know was after they took us to an emergency room, he was transferred to the children's hospital, but I was too unstable to be transferred anywhere. And actually, at the time, the doctor said that I was not going to survive. So it didn't really matter which hospital I died in. And they wanted to provide comfort care for me. But my parents, being of strong, strong faith, they insisted as long as there was breath in my body they insisted that they work on me and do all they could. And, you know, I, I'm so very thankful for having mm. thankful parents and insisted. And it was the beginning, that three-week coma was the beginning of an eight-month hospital journey. And it was a very foreign environment for me because I went from playing baseball that morning to being in a hospital emergency room that afternoon. And life can change just that, just that soon. It can turn in a second, those defining moments in our life. Mm-hmm. Sounds like your parents are strong people, though. Uh, very strong. And and actually, I didn't hear the term burn survivor, and I'm kind of jumping ahead a little bit. I, I, I'd i never heard the term burn survivor until I attended my first world burn. I, I was always a burn victim. And mm-hmm. being in the hospital eight months and having uh, over 50 surgeries, and back then, the burn center was really a ward. It was one room. Mm-hmm. 10 or 12 beds in the room and it was unisex males and females were all there and as a 14 year old i saw a lot of things that a 14 year old probably didn't need to see or Mm -hmm. and what was most frightening for me is to hear adults screaming and crying like little kids i didn't know adults did that you know Mm -hmm. if a kid falls and scrapes his knee you know, he cries and runs home to mom. <laughs> mm-hmm. But adults, if they fall and skin their knee, they're cursing and swearing. And I didn't know, <laughs> I didn't know adults cried like that. And just to hear the sound of that, it was, it was horrifying, actually. Mm, it's traumatizing. Horrifying. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And if these adults can't handle it, what is this little kid? Now I'm a little kid again. <laughs> what, <laughs> what, what is this kid supposed to do? Yeah. yeah. It, was, it was different. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't think that I don't know many burn survivors that ever anticipated it happening. Mm-hmm. I could I could never imagine this happening. And I didn't know this world even existed, to be honest with you. Yeah. 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 And I mean, we hear that all the time is that, you know, you don't really know about the burn survivor community until you are a burn survivor or a loved one has been impacted by a burn. And it's it, the pain and, you know, isol- not just the physical pain, but the mental and emotional pain are, you know, I mean, I don't think anyone's ever prepared for, you know, whether it's a burn or really any big trauma. No one's, you can't, you can't ever be fully prepared for it. No, 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 you, you, you can't, Rachel. Um, and for me, I didn't think that life could get any worse than that hospital stay and that painful surgery. And, and it was a teaching hospital as well. 
And sometimes mm -hmm. when the other patients were treated, sometimes the curtains got pulled, sometimes the curtains didn't get pulled. And it was just really, it couldn't get any worse than that until mm -hmm. I was discharged. And mm -hmm. after eight months, I was discharged home. And I thought I was kicked out because I thought discharge meant you were fixed. And mm -hmm. they were sending me home still fully bandaged. The only part of my body that wasn't bandaged were my feet. And I went home still bandaged, still needing dressing changes three times a day. So I wasn't fixed. So in my mind, after eight months, they kicked me out. And I could not blame them because there was so much effort put into taking care of me. I couldn't blame them for being getting tired of me, despite how sweet I was. <laughs> <laughs> But I, yeah. I, after eight months, I, I went home and I hid in the house for two years. I would not come outside because I was so ashamed of my appearance. I mean, mm -hmm. when I say hid in the house, I only left the house for doctor's appointments or clinic appointments. I hid in the house for two years. And what was difficult about that is seeing what it did to my family. Because mm -hmm. when I was in the hospital, they could be a part of that. My mother would help with my dressing changes. She'd help with the debridement procedures. They could read to me. They could feed me. And once I was home and was ashamed to go out, it was the first time I saw them helpless. And that was mm -hmm. very, very difficult for me to see that. And, uh, mm -hmm. and, and as you know, I said earlier, my family, I was raised in the church. I mean, you could be sick all week and not go to school. But on Sunday, you're getting your butt up and you're going to church. I mean, that's just that was just the environment. And our tradition in my family was always to gather for prayer at the end of the day. I mean, we would pray and give thanks for whatever happened that day. And we would pray and give thanks for whatever tomorrow would bring. That's just what we did. And while I was still hiding in the house, I had to participate in those prayers. So I saw nothing to be thankful for. But I would participate in those prayers, giving thanks. And then when I'd go to my room before I went to bed, I would get on my knees and pray to God, let this be the night that I die in my sleep. Because if I die in my sleep, that was the only release I saw from this living hell I was going through. And it's a different kind of experience to have your heart broken because of the sunrise. And I would see something and say, wow, another day I'd had to experience this. And then I felt like I was being deceitful to my parents, you know, praying and giving thanks with them. Mm -hmm. but, but my secret prayers would just let me die. And I think it's important to make the distinction between wanting to die and suicidal ideation. Those are two mm -hmm. entirely different things. And I think people often confused them as being the same. I never wanted to kill myself, but I wanted to be freed of this, mm -hmm. this hell I was going through. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I did that for a very long time. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for sharing that. And, you know, I, I think everyone burn survivor or not can relate to that. You know, there are, we all go through tough times. Life isn't a breeze. If only, if only it could be. Um, so, you know, you talk about how you kind of hid away for two years, what eventually helped you get out of the house and, and change your mindset? Well, I, what happened ladies is that, and, and I can really look at the times that I had the most forward movement in my life and my journey 
where the times I wasn't focused on me, I was focused on someone else. Mm -hmm. And uh, with all the care I received, because my hands were so badly damaged, they were going to amputate. And I was so afraid that my parents were going to agree with that because they were afraid about infection. And if I got infection, you know, blah, blah, blah. And um, I had to be cared for. I had to be bathed. I had to be fed. I had to. Now, I'm a teenager and I had to use a bedpan. Mm. Uh, and I won't say it's different at any age, but as a teenager, when we think that we have control over the world, it, it, it was just so. So I would eat less than I needed to because the less I ate, the less I would poop. That was my philosophy. But, you know, recovering from a burn injury, you know, we have to be on a high calorie diet. And mm -hmm. I was doing the, the exact opposite. But with people doing all of this for me, feeding me, bathing me, uh, reading to me, cleaning me up after being on the bedpan. If they're doing all of this for me and all they wanted was for me to be okay, that's all they wanted. So I decided if I went back to high school for my senior year of high school and graduated like normal kids, which I don't know if you can use normal in kids in the same sentence, <laughs> but, if I could, but if I could graduate like normal kids, then somehow I could pretend or convince my family that I was okay. And that would be my gift to them. And so it wasn't that I, I saw that I needed school for my future because I really didn't see a future, but what could I give back? And I had nothing to give other than the pretense of being okay. And I promised myself, no matter how difficult it would be, I would never let anyone see me cry. And I was afraid but my desire for this gift to my family was stronger than my, my fear of going back. And sometimes you hear the term, well, you know, sometimes the things we anticipate is worse than the actual thing. Well, this wasn't one of those cases. Because mm -hmm. <laughs> as difficult as I imagined it being, it was far more difficult than that. It was. Uh, the first time I sat in the lunchroom, I sat in the chair next to a, a, a young girl that jumped up and screamed, how dare you come in this lunchroom and spoil everyone's appetite? Mm -hmm. And I wasn't angry at her. I wanted to apologize to her because maybe the way I look, I was spoiling everyone's appetite. And I decided to substitute lunch for a uh, study hall. And just those things, you know, uh, and the things that people would say. And, um, and I would get home with my... My mom waiting with on pins and needles, just, oh man, is it, how was today? And I would muster up this smile when I walk in the front door and I would immediately rush to the bathroom because that was the only door in our house that had a lock on it. And I can go mm -hmm. in the bathroom and cry without anyone walking in on me. And some days when I couldn't make it home, I would sit in the alley behind our garage and just bawl my eyes out and pulled myself together before I walked in the door because um, I was focused. I was focused on getting this diploma, no matter how difficult it was for me. And even the teachers, I mean, they didn't know how to handle this situation. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this is 50 some years ago and they would sit me in back of the class and they were trying to be supportive of me so that people wouldn't stare at me. 
and they sent mm-hmm. me in back of the class. They let me leave class five minutes early to get to my next class before the hallways got crowded. So I'm hiding in the house because I feel different. I go back to school and now I'm treated different, which really confirms mm-hmm. that I am different. And uh, I decided, I said, well, I can't hide. You know, the more I try to hide, the more attention I'm drawing to myself. So I just put myself all the way out there. I mean, I went to all the extracurricular events. I went to all the baseball games, the basketball games. I even ran for a class president, came in runner up for senior awesome. class president and, um, <laughs> and graduated in the top of my class. And I want, to, I want to pause right here to give you guys time to applaud for that. I graduated in the top of my class. That's amazing. I, not impressed, huh? Okay. <laughs> no, that's Thank very you. impressive. Hard, hard, hard crowd. You know, no, I remember, no, that. I, I remember getting that, getting that diploma, and when I walked across that stage, I mean, all of my family, all of neighbors and relatives were there, and they cheered so loud when I got that diploma, and I gave it to my mom, and I remember my grandmother immediately snatching it from her. <laughs> but it was mission accomplished. But I couldn't feel, I didn't feel good about it very long because it's like, now what? I, mm-hmm. I can't go back. I didn't think any further than that diploma. It's like, now what do I do? I can't hide back in the house because I've been out here for so long. What do I do now? And again, panic set in. But mm-hmm. it gave me an opportunity because I was focused on someone else. It really benefited me because I had no need to go back in hiding now. I didn't know what the future held for me, but hiding away wasn't part of it because I had moved past it because I was focused on someone else. And then I went on to college and, you know, got the job and got married and had kids and blah, 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 got divorced, you know, all of that stuff. Um, But really began putting together what I call a success package. You know, I want to do all the things that I'm doing air quotes, all the things that normal people did. So I, I, I wanted to get the good education. I wanted to get the good job. I wanted to get married. I wanted to have the house, the, the dog, the white picket. I wanted all of that stuff. And I acquired all of that. And I don't say it as though I'm bragging. I mean, I even uh, was a radio uh, announcer for a while and uh had a That's television why you sound so good on the show. podcast. I mean, it was, <laughs> is that why I sound so good on the podcast? <laughs> well, it's that and, radio and, voice. And the television, <laughs> the television, the, you know, and believe it or not, and I think this podcast is a good place to be transparent because I did have a future in radio. I was a voice, see, and you know, I was doing my my thing with burning incense in the studio and was really making love to people's ears through the radio and had gotten quite a following. And people would want to meet me or they would invite me to MC programs and I would refuse everything because mm-hmm. I didn't have time. And I really began to stress about that because people would want to date me. They would want to come visit me. They would try to describe what I looked like and... I just felt that I was being a fraud because the voice did not match the face. And, and I said, man, am I on radio because I enjoy it or am I on radio 
because I'm hiding still. Mm-hmm. And I didn't. Uh, so I left radio. I, I left radio because of that. And I don't know if it was true or not. I still can't answer it today, but I can look back on it. And, and t- today I can very clearly know that it played some, some part in that. Really low. And, and I'm still trying to find normal. I'm still trying to find that detour to normal and have gone on to do a lot of amazing things. Owned a couple of businesses, successful, some not, and uh, owned a couple of retail establishments in Detroit and did concert, did all of this stuff. And I don't say it to be bragging. You know, th- this is, it's my testimony. It, it's, it's, it's what it is. It's, it's my testimony. And, mm-hmm. and I don't try to impress my beliefs on anyone else, but, you know, to God be the glory to my life's journey. And I, and I, I recognize that because he is the head of my life. But all I really wanted, ladies, all I really wanted was to walk into a room and not be noticed. That was mm-hmm. all. That was all I wanted. And it didn't matter how much success I accumulated. Um, I could not ignore the fact that I was burned because it was a part of my experience and it was a part of who I am. So I didn't like that. And no matter how much success or how many things I did or accumulated, it wasn't going to make that disappear. You know, and mm-hmm. it even it even impacted my marriage, and it took me a while to realize that. Um, and maybe I'm giving some long answers to a short question. I don't know. No, no, you're not. <laughs> no. Um, I do want to know though, Dennis. <clears throat> so there was that time, right, where you said you just kind of did what you wanted to, to to please everyone in your family. At what point did it become okay? I'm no longer the victim to this, right? And even if you didn't use that word, what time? What point did it become like I'm doing this because I want to do it? You know, that's a that's a good question. And that segues right into me stumbling into the burn community because I didn't know there was one. I wasn't looking for one because I didn't know there was one. Um, mm-hmm. And I had gone on with my life. Like I said, I've done all these amazing things and was married. I was divorced. And I at the time I owned a music store. I did independent music retail in Detroit. And uh I was at my store one day and none of the staff had come in yet because our staff didn't usually come in until around three because we didn't really get business until after people got out of school and got off work. Mm-hmm. And I was there one day and it was extremely busy. And I'm trying to take care of customers and make sure people aren't stealing anything. And I'm doing this stuff. And the telephone rung. And it was a friend of mine who I used to work with. And her uncle had gotten burned. And he was in the hospital and they couldn't bring him out of his depression. So in desperation, she called me and asked me to go talk to him. And I told her yes and hung up without really thinking about it because I'm busy. And as soon as I hung the phone up, panic set in because Mm -hmm. I had never talked or seen another burned person. And I got angry with her. Because what right does she have to ask me that? Even though it's obvious I'm burned, and all the years we worked together, I never talked about it. I mean, mm-hmm. up to this point, we're at 20 years post-burn now. And I still have not had a conversation about it, and not even with my family, not with my wife, my kids, no one. And here she was asking me. And I used to say I had to go because I told her I would. But the reality is I need to own that. And the reality is I could have just not went. Mm-hmm. 
but I did go because I chose to go. And man, um, I went to the burn center and it in the hospital I was in, the building was torn down. So this was the new burn center in the new building. And I paced back and forth in the lobby. Am I going to mm -hmm. go? Am I not going to go? Am I going to go? I took a deep breath and I went up to visit with this gentleman. And I don't remember his name. If he was on this podcast right now, I wouldn't even recognize him. But I sat and I talked with this gentleman for a couple of hours. And as I was leaving, he told me how much he really appreciated the conversation and connecting with someone who had gone through this and had gotten on with their life. And he said, mm -hmm. Dennis, I think I'm going to be OK. And I just appreciate you coming to talk with me and thank the support group for sending you. And I was like, what the hell is he talking about? <laughs> and I went to the nurse's station and they had some brochures on the counter of a support group hmm. that was happening the first Monday of every month. And it was less than three, three miles from my place of business. And I had no idea. Hmm. It was the Burns United Support Group, which is still functioning in Detroit. And I had no idea. But I'm confused, too, because when I left, it was the first time I attached anything positive to this injury. Mm. I say, wow, he said it helped him. Mm. And I, I'm trying to process all of this. And, and I called the support group and uh, Donna, Donna Schneck, who ran the support group, she invited me to come. I told her I would, but I was busy, couldn't make it, but I would call her and apologize. And she said, no, Dennis, don't, don't, don't worry about it. We'll see you next month. And we talked for about 10 minutes. The next month, I was busy. And I, I, I need to do air quotes. I was busy <laughs> and, and, and couldn't make it. And then I would call her and apologize. And she never pressed the issue. She said, that's okay, next month. And then we talked for about 10 minutes. And we did this dance for about four or five months. <laughs> and one month, I actually went. I actually went to the support group. And when I walked in that church, it was in the church lobby area, which is where it was held at. When I walked in, there were eight or nine burn survivors sitting in a circle. And man, I believe I almost fainted uh, because this was not what I expected. This was more than I even knew was possible. And it was bittersweet because I had found people that understood, but it also said that there are other people that suffered just like me. So you know, it was good and bad, you know, sweet and sour. And believe it or not, um, as they were introducing themselves, when it got to me, I opened my mouth. And before I could even get my name out, I just started bawling like a baby. Mm -hmm. I just and they allowed me to. Mm -hmm. They allowed me that space. And I just bawled like a baby. But it also was the meeting where they were making travel plans to attend World Burn Congress. Oh, my gosh. Which was the following month. And they That's invited amazing. me, and I'm like, hell no. <laughs> I, I think because I'm trying to process being in a room with this eight or nine eight people. <laughs> I'm, I'm definitely not going somewhere where you're telling me there are more people that actually get. And I was like, no, I'm not. I, I'm no, that this is I, this is too much for me to, at all too fast. And I also was working. Um, in the mornings, I was working in an office assisting a, uh, 
a public speaker, this this guy called Les Brown. He was a he's a motivational speaker, world renowned speaker now, but yeah, he was getting there then. And I went into the office and I just do you guys want to know what happened to me? And everybody was, yeah. So everybody's pulling their chairs together in the outer office, and I'm just sharing with them and bawling because I can't stop talking about it now that the the door was cracked. Mm-hmm. Yep. And I was telling them about it and they said, Dennis, you should go to that conference. I was said, no, I told them I wasn't going to go. And the following week, when I came into the office, they had pooled their money together. Wow. They got in touch with the support group. They registered me. They bought me a plane ticket and uh, they paid for my hotel and had it sitting on my desk. Oh, wow. And I was like, I told you guys I wasn't going to go. And they said, Dennis, we spent this money on you. You can't now you make have to. Now you have to go. <laughs> and and I, I went. I went to World Burn only a month after going to my first support group. And that's amazing. I, I, I won't say who was in the group that went with, but there was a fellow who was, it was his first time going to World Burn. And he and I sat on the back of that plane. I would buy him a nervous shot of liquor. <laughs> he would buy me a nervous shot and we were buying each other shots of liquor. And by the time we got to the destination, we, we were, we were pretty toasted. I'd have to say that. <laughs> we were, we were pretty, pretty toasted. And um, attending that world burn, I walked into that hotel and I see all of these burn people and I was hyperventilating and I checked into the hotel went up to my hotel room and just started crying. I said, I'm going to sit in this hotel room until it's time to go Mm -hmm. back to Detroit. I said, because I can't handle this. I'm just going to do room service. I can't handle this. And something, that internal dialogue that we have, Mm -hmm. um, we can encourage ourselves or we can discourage ourselves. And we're very skilled at doing both as people. Mm -hmm. I think uh, Mm -hmm. somebody said earlier, none of this, is unique to Burns. It's just when we have these challenges in life, you know, what do we do with it? How does it manifest mm-hmm. itself uh, in how we operate? And I went back downstairs. I had left something at the front desk and they called me and I had to go back down and get it. And I went down and I was standing in the corner behind some chairs and I wasn't even aware of it. Aware of it. And some burn survivors approached me. You know how world burn is. Um, mm-hmm. We're all family here and blah, 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 blah. You know, we hugging everybody. It's like, I don't want to say shit on this podcast, but I'm like, oh. You can say shit. Yeah, this, is, this is all happening too much. Who are these people? And they don't understand me. It's, mine has to be different. And, and my story and my experience was not unique. And there was some solace I found in that. And, and back then, World Burn was, I think it was around 100 people. Mm-hmm. attending back then and um and i was i was introduced to alan <laughs> alan and delwin breslow and alan was this gonna be the best thing that ever happened to you i say he is totally insane <laughs> uh, and, and, and i i grew to understand what that meant but it was it was so um i don't even know the word to say but i had found my tribe you know, this was my family. This was my village. There was a community of people who under who understood. Because so often I heard growing up, I heard, I know exactly how you feel. 
Mm. It's like, well, you've not been burned. No, you don't. Or <laughs> everything is going to be all right. And, you know, what I always wanted to respond, and I didn't because I was a kid, I wanted to respond, how the hell do you know it's going to be all right? How do you know that? And and we we tend to toss these very flowery platitudes around to be supportive, but sometimes they can come off so disingenuous that you just mm. go, ugh. And mm-hmm. because people were saying things that weren't honest, it didn't allow me to be honest with them. It would have meant the world to me if somebody had approached me and said, Dennis, I can't imagine what you're going through. I mm-hmm. can't even imagine. I don't even know what to do for you, but I'm here. Mm-hmm. That would have been honest. And then that would have given me license to be honest with that person because people mm-hmm. were saying what they thought I wanted to hear. Mm-hmm. And I, in turn, was acting and saying what I thought they wanted to hear. Because for mm-hmm. a long time, because anyone that knows me, if you ask me how I'm doing, I would tell you I am excellent and getting better all the time. But for years and years and years, I would say that I did not mean it. I did not mean it, you know. Um, but when I say it, I'm not just responding to you, but I'm also talking to myself. Mm-hmm. So if 20 people ask me how I'm doing and I respond excellent and getting better, they may have heard it one time, but I heard it 20 times. And that's mm-hmm. important for me to constantly talk mm-hmm. to myself and move through that. And actually with World Burn, I think my third, I had been to two World Burns and it was gonna be hosted in Detroit. And I'd been to one and it was gonna be hosted in Detroit and some things happened with the coordinator there. So Alan Breslau just tossed it to me. I said, well, (laughs) I've only been to one. What are you doing? Of course I said yes, because I didn't know how to say no. And so, my second world burn was actually the one I hosted in Detroit. Uh, and I had done concert, I'd done concert promotions and event planning and that stuff through my music business. So I just modeled it after that. And um, it was quite the experience uh, attending world burn was overwhelming, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, and I still hear people say that now that it's just so much to take in mm-hmm. and it's only a couple of days. And by time, my feet landed on the ground. It was time to time to go. And um, mm-hmm. and I don't even know, and you guys may struggle with this as well. I don't even know how to describe world burning words because mm-hmm. I'm not sure if words can describe it because it's an experience. I mean, and when you say life-changing experience, people attach that to a lot of stuff. You know, I went on a fishing trip and caught more fish than I ever caught. It was a life-changing. No, this is really... A life-changing experience mm-hmm. but but what it did for me it changed the entire trajectory of my life it, mm-hmm. it, it really did because after 20 years of ignoring it i i had to step into it mm-hmm. and, and even my first world burn uh i spoke at my first world burn believe it or not uh the chairperson of the conference because i was so freaked out at my first world burn he took me out of the hotel and we went down the street to have a cup of coffee. He, he understood I need to get outside just to breathe. Mm-hmm. And, and we're at a coffee shop down the street from the hotel. And I, Bob Nice, he was the chairperson of, of World Burn, a, a firefighter who was also burned as a kid. And we mm-hmm. had a lot of things in common. And I'm bawling. I'm crying in my coffee. And, and he, let me, he let me bawl. And, and we talked. 
And we went back to the hotel. Now, the next morning is the opening ceremony of World Burn. And the opening speaker uh, canceled. Mm. And Bob's on stage. He's saying, you know, our opening speaker canceled. He's like, but I met a gentleman yesterday. (laughs) (laughs) And we had quite an amazing conversation. His story is amazing. I think he would be a good person. And I said, he can't be talking about me. (laughs) And he called me up on the stage. And all I remember is crying on stage. That's all I remember was when I stepped on that stage and turned and looked at all of these burned people. I just cried through whatever the hell I said. And uh, and when I left World Burn, there were probably about a dozen organizations that asked me to come and speak or burn camp, as uh, Rachel knows, uh, mm-hmm. one of the burn camps where she and I first connected. Uh, and just, and I couldn't stop, you know, this whole community. I had found my tribe. And, and I like to say um, what it has done for me it has gifted me or blessed me to release the question why because all of my life mm-hmm. i wondered why because i was a busy kid but i wasn't bad and i grew up on the east side of detroit where i had friends and associates that were gang members and killers and but I, it wasn't me i did good in school so was this somehow god's mistake you know was mm-hmm. his aim off and i was standing too close to somebody that it was meant for and i i and i had no frame of reference because there was nobody i saw that had gone through this and mm-hmm. and i thought once the bandages came off it, i would be normal again because i had mm-hmm. broken my arm kept a cast on my arm eight weeks when the cast came off mm-hmm. things got back and i thought this was That's somehow gonna, normal. yeah it's going to be the same thing and it and it was not but stumbling into the community and 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 recognizing that i had something to offer which still amazes me now as a professional speaker it still amazes me that people want me to come and talk and they actually listen to what i have to say and i'm not being overly <laughs> i'm not being overly i'm not over uh, simplifying it but part of my um survival technique or strategy i had to convince myself what happened to me wasn't a big deal because mm-hmm. if I can convince myself it wasn't a big deal, anything that happened or anything that was said to me associated with it wouldn't be a big deal either. Mm-hmm. And then you, you you fast forward. Now people are wanting me to share a story that there's a part of me, little Dennis in there still said, you know, this is really not a big deal. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's really not a big deal. And it's so important for me to focus on the impact that it has to focus on why I'm doing it and who I'm doing it Mm -hmm. for and take it off of me and recognizing that the message flows through me, not from me. But I, but, but I recognize that it wasn't an accident. You know, I call it an incident and Mm -hmm. I recognize that I had to go through that. You know, I had to, I had to live down in that suffering because I couldn't have learned it in a book no one could have Mm-mm. told me. I couldn't have taken a class. I had to live in it, which allows me to connect with people in their suffering because there too I have suffered. And you couldn't have convinced me the time would come that every day I give thanks for every scar on my body. And I'm mm-hmm. so grateful for the pains that I still have. Some related to the burn, more of them now related to <laughs> old age, but uh, 
I'm very thankful for it because that was my preparation for what I've been called to do today. So I call it an incident and I stepped into my purpose. And mm -hmm. people say, well, things happen for a reason or God doesn't put more on you than you can bear. I say, God's got a lot of confidence in me. <laughs> <laughs> I used to spend I, a lot of time, I think, in that why me. And I, I remember saying that once to a counselor, just saying, well, I just don't understand. And you brought up a good point. So, well, why not you? Right. Like everybody has mm -hmm. stuff that they go through. So why, why, why shouldn't right? God handle this and give this to you? And that can be a diff difficult thing mm -hmm. to like sit with. Right. Of like, oh yeah, why not? Like I, anybody else, you know, wh why, what have I done to make this like not something I could handle? So, right. but it's a hard journey and it's a hard like thing to process as somebody who's like yeah. going through it. And I think it, like you said, it takes a really long time to get past that, that why and be able to, whether it's finding purpose, right. In some cases, I think that helps you get over the why, but then also just dealing with, yeah, like, why not me? And why, why not mm -hmm. other things? And as I think that's helped me as I move on from that initial incident, right. When things, things happen or a bad thing happens in your life, like realizing and learning from, you know what, like this happened and, and bad things are going to happen, but um, why, why not have me handle this? Right. So it's a hard realization to go through though. It, it, mm -hmm. it really is. And, and my warped perception on that, uh, uh and I, I say warped perception because that's what I've been told a number of times, <laughs> but, um, mm -hmm. I, I personally, me, I don't believe there are good and bad situations. I say, because it's really our perception because my, yeah. My, my trademark uh, saying is problems are perceptions, not situations. Mm. And it's all in how you perceive it. Because I have the same scars that I had when I was hiding in the house. Mm -hmm. You know, this is the same injury that was the worst tragedy in my life. Mm -hmm. That today, I went from hiding in the house to now I travel around the world standing on stages in front of thousands of people with the same scars. <laughs> the thing that I'm giving thanks for today is the greatest blessing in my life. So the situation didn't change. Mm -mm. What changed was my perception, perception of it. And, and I, mm -hmm. and I, and I don't tell people how to think, but I, but I do believe that's, that's something to consider. Mm -hmm. um, and what I traded, I heard someone one time say that they met a lot of amazing people in the burn community, some of their best friends, but they lost their child in the fire. And they said, if I can have my child back, I'd get over missing all of y'all if I could just have my child. <laughs> and, 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 and I get it, you know, I, I, I get it. And it's, it's where we are in our journey of where I'm at now is not where I've always been. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to oversimplify it where I am today. I would like to think I'm beyond this five years from now, you know, mm -hmm. I, 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 I really want to continue to grow and do I struggle? I do still struggle with things, but I would have to believe I would struggle with things even if I wasn't burned. Mm -hmm. you know, um, my marriage. I, I have a friend who got burned as a kid. She got a boyfriend in high school. They went off to college. After college, they got married. They had two kids. They were married for 13 years. He left her. And she called me on the phone so upset. And her reasoning was, I knew he was going to leave me because of my burns. Now, it may not sound rational, but what that told me is 
all this time she's been waiting for him to leave. Because mm-hmm. she waiting was burned when drop. Yeah, mm-hmm. she was burned when they met. <laughs> mm-hmm. She was burned when they dated. She was burned when they got married. She was burned when they had two kids. She was burned during the 13 year marriage. But when he left, she was waiting for him to leave because mm-hmm. and, and I can relate to that because in, in my marriage, I could not believe that this woman would marry me unless she mm-hmm. felt sorry for me. And as superficial as it sounds, as part of my success package, marriage was part of that. It had to be an unusually attractive woman. And I know that sounds shallow, but in my mind, the more beautiful my wife was, the less ugly I would be. And somehow it would balance out. Yeah. And that yeah. is so that is so not fair, but I realized that 10 years after my divorce, because uh, I was asked to facilitate a couple's, a burn survivor couple's retreat in Lake Tahoe. And I'm like, yeah, right. You know, I'm an expert because <laughs> I'm divorced and hasn't been in a relationship since. Uh, but they wanted me to do it and I did it. But I went through that weekend listening to people and on this journey with different couples. And it really made me reflect on my own. And I, and I looked at where I fell short in the relationship. And it's never all one person. <laughs> but Mm-mm. I could only own my stuff. Mm-hmm. And I look at all the things that I did. I say, man, uh, as I got my independence back, I was fiercely protective of it. And whatever I could do, I wouldn't mm-hmm. let anybody do it. And if it, and someone tried to, if my wife tried to do something for me, in my mind, what you're saying, I can't do it. Mm-hmm. And no one wants to be in a relationship where they don't feel needed. And mm-hmm. if there was something, some place to go where I thought it was going to be a little difficult, I wouldn't let her go. Never said it, mm. but I, but I just didn't want to encounter stuff where she had to deal with it. Cause I grew up like that, you know, with people saying things, I had to kind of chill the people that were with me and, and we divorced. And I realized that, and I said, I need to call her and apologize. Mm. Now this is a real sweet love story right here. So I really want you to get this part. <laughs> <laughs> I want to hear it. <laughs> I, I needed to call her and apologize. Now this is 10 years after my divorce and does she even give a damn anymore? Right. Mm. And it was new year's Eve. And I said, you know, I can't let this year go out without reaching out to her and apologizing. And I was scared. I'll be honest with you. I, I was visibly shaking and my mouth was dry and my throat, but I needed to do this because mm-hmm. the apology is not just for, for the person you're giving it to, but it's for mm-hmm. you also. Mm-hmm. And I'm not responsible for how that person takes it. But if I need to apologize, we need to apologize. And I called her New Year's Eve and she thought it was a booty call. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, I don't know why you're calling me on New Year's Eve because we not resurrecting anything. No, all, <laughs> the hell with that all anxiety. No, it's not working, buddy. <laughs> And, and as I began to explain to her, it's not a booty call, but I really need to talk to her about something. I'm bawling. I mean, I'm, I'm, and with, with her hearing me cry, she knows that I'm serious, that it's, Mm -hmm. and I'm bawling and I just needed to apologize to her. And I told her some of the things that I realized and all these years later, it may not make a difference to you, but I need to apologize to you. 
and then she starts sharing some things. Now she's crying, I'm crying, the ball is the, the apple is dropping in New York City, you know, all of this stuff is going on. And we talked for a couple of hours on that phone and we hung up. And I didn't know if it made a difference to her. Because when people get divorced, you sometimes lose your identity. Because when I would mm -hmm. run into her, I was no longer Dennis, I was her ex, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> But after that call, I ran into her a couple of months later and she was with some people. And she said, I want you guys to meet my good friend, Dennis. And we used mm. to be married. And I was like, wow, wow, it did make a difference. And it just touched me that not only that we became friends again, but just the power of communication, just mm -hmm. and how difficult it is. But sometimes it's just, I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. Mr. Simplis, I'm, I'm sorry. You know, um, and she shared some things with me. She said how, how angry when we were married, how angry she would get with me. Because mm -hmm. when we'd be out and people would say derogatory things about me, she's ready to fight. But mm -hmm. because I didn't, it didn't allow her to fight. So then she'd get mad at me. Okay? <laughs> For not going to war that she could help me and I never knew she felt like that and just that whole dynamic of it's simply asking you what do you need because sometimes when we care about people we do things without asking you know well, I know exactly what you need what did you ask uh, mm -hmm. give you an example when someone has death in the family oh we can't let them be by themselves well maybe they want to be by themselves mm -hmm. do you want to ask and it's just an interesting, interesting dynamic. And mm. just as we grow and we get older and, and have honest dialogue with ourselves and really take a look at ourselves, because that's the hardest part. Mm. Because the shift for me, I was skipping my happy butt through the airport, going somewhere. And I'm, you know, uh, always trying to sing. And these two guys were walking towards me and they started making fun of me, how I look. And I was like, man, those guys just ruined my day. And I looked back at them and they were at one of the restaurants in the airport looking at the menu in the window. And I thought about it, I said, wow, I don't know those guys. I may not ever see them again. Why does their opinion matter so much to me? Mm -hmm. They've moved on, they're looking at lunch now and here I am. And that's when I realized how dare I want people to accept me when I wasn't accepting where people are. Mm. How do I ask you to accept me by asking you to change? I said, no, no. I said, it begins with me accepting people where they are, how they feel about it, how they react to it, accepting that. And I had to begin to work on me because it's not what people said. It's just that what they said reminded me of something negative I was already feeling about myself. Mm -hmm. It had nothing to do with other people. So I had to begin to put the work on me. I had to begin to work on me, which was the really hard work because it stripped away all the excuses. Mm -hmm. It's easy to say that people are mean, people are cruel. But once it was me, I, 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 it stripped away all the excuses and I really had to begin to put the work in on me. You know, mm -hmm. and that was a, a that was a major turning point for me. Mm. Yeah, Dennis, do you still um, going back to your ex wife? Are you guys still friends today? We are, we are. That's we are wonderful. Still, yeah, we 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 are. And she tells me now that um, 
she's happy that I stepped into my purpose and mm. she doesn't think that it would have happened had we stayed mm. together uh, because I'd have been so focused on her and the kids and all of that stuff. But she said she, she understands it now because um, neither one of us understood it then. You know, mm -hmm. I was getting I was getting married because it was part of a success package, and, and she was mm -hmm. getting married because she was pulled in by my warm and loving. <laughs> <way>. <laughs> <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, but it's it's very difficult to. Uh, it was very difficult for me to allow someone to love me when I wasn't mm -hmm. loving myself. Yeah, so, uh, I... it starts it starts there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can totally relate to that. Just and, you know, especially as children, burn survivors or young teenagers. And as you grow up, you're going through this change. And I used to do that all the time. Like my high school boyfriend, I, I was the same way. Like, how can someone love me when I look like this? But it starts with me loving myself. But I put all the blame on other people, because I didn't want to put the blame on myself. <laughs> mm -hmm. And we all tend to do that. You know, dealing mm -hmm. with someone else's pain is easier than dealing with our own. Mm -hmm. so, and and sure I think I was doing a uh, a young adult retreat up in Calgary, and one of the the young adults he said, "I I hate getting burned that I got burned because my scars are so effing ugly." And he started crying. Now he didn't need anyone to tell him it's okay, it's not that bad. Don't he just needed to say it. And then mm -hmm. someone else started crying. Someone else in the circle started crying. I started crying because we all felt that. We all felt mm. that. And it was the first time that I said the words that I didn't like what happened to me either. And I didn't like my scars because I didn't know I could say it because it was going to make somebody sad. Mm -hmm. And I didn't want to make anyone sad, but I had to own it. And being in that vulnerable place of that retreat allowed me to say it. But hell, that was almost 25 years after my burn to even say mm -hmm. it and to hear those words come out of my mouth, man, it was incredibly painful hearing that because I had been carrying the weight of it for mm -hmm. so long. And mm -hmm. I hope through formats like this, what you guys are doing with this podcast and people being able to listen in the, the safety of their own home or their computer screen and hear these conversations that you guys are having, that maybe there are people that, that don't have realize that they don't have to carry that weight and mm -hmm. and it's okay not to like it you know it's okay to feel bad about it but just not stay in that place you know so yeah. i can't tell you guys how much i appreciate what you guys are doing not just having me as a guest on here but what you guys are doing because mm -hmm. there's there, you could be doing something else i mean you really could and i i, I truly believe and know that the people you guys will influence and impact the most are people you'll never have any idea. Mm -hmm. Just know that you're doing the right thing. Yeah. You're doing a good thing that's going to help somebody. And I just, I just applaud you guys for doing it. Well, know? thank you, Dennis. Thank you. And as, yeah. but I know we're running up on time, but I do have, you know, I do want you to talk a little bit about um, before we end our, our podcast today. Um, you're the executive director of the Georgia Firefighters Burn Foundation, which is is absolutely wonderful. So you're doing some some really beautiful good within your community as well. Can you tell us a little, just a, a few, you know, short snippets about what that foundation is like? Um, what are some of the events? So if someone wants to get involved in your area um, and be a part of of Team Dennis, how, how would they get involved? <laughs> well, th thank you for the question. Actually, 
I took off my Georgia Firefighters Burn Foundation shirt because I didn't want to cross promote. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I didn't want to take those liberties, but um, the Georgia Firefighters Burn Foundation was founded 40 years ago by a group of firefighters who raised some money to buy a wheelchair for a patient being discharged from the hospital. And then they raised some money for a wheelchair ramp. Then they raised more money and kept doing it. And more firefighters got involved and it became a nonprofit that that grew to be statewide, which is really the Southeast region of the country now. But the mission is to partner with the fire service and burn care community to provide safety and prevention education, support medical facilities, and assist burn survivors in their journey of recovery. And that last part is really the meat of what we do, assist burn survivors in their journey of recovery. And we like to think the firefighters get people out of burning houses and cars and get them to the hospital. And then the hospital, does an amazing job because I think now the survival rate is like 95% mm -hmm. and the hospital does an amazing job. And we like to look at ourselves as that resource to hold a person's hand after discharge in their journey of recovery. And it's really for them to determine what that recovery looks like for them. You know, we have a children's mm -hmm. burn camp that's over a hundred kids every year. That's a week long residential camp. We have a young adult burn survivor retreat. We have burn survivor family weekend where families come together, if anyone in the family has been burned injured, that they, they're eligible to come to the retreat, whether it's the child, the mother, the father, the grandparent, whoever come to the retreat. So it, there's, a, there's a continuum of care in a holistic way. And really, I guess what we do is allow people to give voice to how they feel and support them on their journey. And our website is www.gfbf.org. That's G goodfriendbestfriend.org <laughs> and and we'd encourage people to log on there and just see mm -hmm. some of the things that we're doing and and we like to look at ourselves as maybe a tentacle from the phoenix society they're at the top and we're one of those tentacles because there are a lot of supports out there and we're always looking for support mm -hmm. um, as as a nonprofit, we do and for me being the executive director i like to say all it means is i'm the one that has to go out and get lunch if it's inclement weather. That's all it means. <laughs> I, I, I've got an office full of females. It's me and one other guy and several females. And hell, I was married to one person and end up in divorce. I don't know how the hell I'm managing this. <laughs> but, I also, but I also understand that just a happy wife, happy life. See, when I was married, mm -hmm. I thought it was 50-50. Like, silly me, right? <laughs> uh, but but, but it, it, I have an amazing team. Um, in Atlanta, and we really impact. And everyone on my staff, everyone I've hired, I've hired based on their passion, not necessarily mm. their skill set, because skills you can teach, passion, yeah, passion you, you, so have, you have to bring that. And and we're there, and we're starting on our second 40 years to see about making it happen. And every year, we sponsor at least a dozen people to attend World Burn. And I put that in the budget because I understand how important it is. You know, mm -hmm. um, I know the impact of the Phoenix Society. I know the experience of World Burn can be life changing for burn mm -hmm. survivors. So when I do the yearly budget, I budget for that on the front end, you know, because I did want to end this 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 podcast talking about World Burn and it mm -hmm. all of this, you know, my life and all of this. It really started with my introduction into the burn survivor community. And it started with. Uh, world attending my first world burn congress and i didn't know i was going to 
changed the trajectory of mm -hmm. my life. But uh, I, I heard the term burn survivor for the first time at World Burn. I was a burn victim mm -hmm. up to that point. And it's so powerful, just the language that we use, mm -hmm. you know, to call myself a burn survivor, that's empowering. To call myself mm -hmm. a, burn, a burn, I may have been victimized by the incident, but having gotten through it and, and giving people space to grieve. Mm -hmm. You talk about the, changing your mindset, right? So you're changing your mindset by calling yourself a survivor instead of a yes, victim. Yes. Yeah. Yes, because what we what we hear, we process, and what we process, we become. So we got to be very careful what comes out of our mouth. Mm -hmm. You know. Absolutely. Uh, and, I just, and I just appreciate the 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 opportunity to be here. And if anyone's interested in attending World Burn, and I just encourage if they're on the fence about it, just do it. <laughs> Go and do it. Well, you just can do that by registering at worldburncongress.org and we'll make sure that's in our show notes. Dennis, I know we're wrapping up here, but we have two final questions we ask all of our uh, our uh, attendees that, that join us on the podcast. So um, uh, my first question for you today mm -hmm. is what self-care looks like for Dennis? So um, what is what does self-care look like for you? Um, and how do you kind of, uh, when you're having a bad day or, or just having one of those days, um, what do you do for yourself? Well, uh, I don't have bad days, first of all. Every day is a good day, and some days better than that. My grandfather, that was his this mantra that he lived 89 years with. I but I that. think but I think for me, uh, I think a mistake people make is they try to figure out, you know, what worked and well, I need to go on vacation, those kind of things. For me, it's laying on the couch for a couple of days, eating junk food, watching sports and old movies, and not even showering. And <laughs> and, and and I can do that for about for about two days and then I'm, I'm ready to because I'm a very hyper I'm full of energy so but uh, but two days and when I do it I really I have to force myself sometime but that recharges my battery you know I can watch mm -hmm. an old movie I can watch some sports I don't have to think I don't have to shower I can eat junk food and not feel guilty about it and that's how I recharge my battery so when I, I don't have to put together a vacation that's going to happen two months from now no I can do it tomorrow <laughs> or this weekend, just spend the weekend laying on the couch. And that's mm -hmm. what works for me. That's what works I for love me. That. Yes. Yeah. Awesome. Well, before I do ask you our final question, I do just want to thank you for coming on the podcast and thank you for all the work you do, you know, especially in the local community. I know we didn't really get a chance to talk about how both Amber and I kind of met you through our journeys. Um, so we may have to have you on the podcast again so we can really dive into some of that. If you get um, me on here again, I'll give you guys a chance to talk. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. We love you, having hey, you, Dennis. Yes, you make our podcast. Well, we did have some technical difficulties before we started. You that did. was my fault. But it wasn't your fault, Dennis. <laughs> no, and I did try to blame Dennis for it, but it was my fault. But uh, no, you make our jobs easy. As long as I can hear you and speak okay into the microphone, you made our job super easy today. But yeah, so our, our final question, it's our Phoenix Partner question, which today is sponsored by NFSA, the voice of the fire sprinkler, sprinkler industry, um, is, you know, what advice would you give to a newly injured burn survivor? What advice would I give to a newly injured burn survivor? Mm -hmm. Is to recognize that a burn survivor it's not just the person physically injured, but it's everyone who's impacted. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. In my own journey, uh, it was difficult what I went through, but it was even more difficult watching what it did to my family. Mm 
because it just mm -hmm. decimated my family. And that would be my advice is just to notice it's not just it's not just you going through it. It's all of those people in your circle and in your life. They're going through it as well. And that mm -hmm. would be not only for the burn person, but that would be for those people because compassion fatigue is very real. Yes, it certainly yeah. is. Well, Dennis, you have been nothing but a pleasure and a joy to have on this show. We thank you so much for joining us today. And with that, we hope to see you again very soon on the podcast. Thank you so much. Yes. Well, you guys keep doing what you're doing. I love you for it. For all those, on behalf of all those people like me who didn't have it, I, I can't thank you enough for doing it. Thanks so much, Dennis. Thank we'll you. See you soon. Yep. Bye. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of Girls Thanks with Crafts. So if you are enjoying this content, please feel free to rate, subscribe, content, and leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. This helps others find the show, and we greatly appreciate it. Thanks again for listening, and we'll catch you in the next episode. And we'll catch you in the next episode.